It's time for Moment of Truth with David Moses. Greetings and welcome to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. That is 95.7 in Ottawa and 106.5 in Toronto. Of course, you could also be listening anywhere across the country if you download the Radio Player Canada app and type in 106.5 ELMNTFM or 95.7 ELMNTFM. I'd like to welcome my first guest to the show. It is Barry Choi. He is a travel expert and also a financial expert, but not a financial advisor, I understand. So, Barry, it's an interesting time, I'm guessing, in both these fields. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess that was funny how one thing relates to the other, right? It is. And, and you know, I have to admit, uh, on a personal level, uh, I I don't like the idea of us having to mix um, our finances with uh, how you know how how it's being affected by the the current uh, conditions in 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 the health issue you know with uh, mm-hmm. COVID nineteen I, I don't necessarily like having to relate those things but I do know of course that they are related relatable and they are affected by one another. Yeah, I think people are starting to quickly realize how one major event can affect so many different things. So obviously, this started out as a a public health issue, and then people quickly realized, wait a minute, this relates to tourism, and tourism counts for 10% of the jobs worldwide. Uh, and of course, there's a trickle-down effect, so, so people are really starting to see what's going on, especially with what happened with the markets recently. So when you yeah. say 10% of worldwide market and travel, um, uh, can you are you able to give us a little bit of a background or a history? Because travel certainly has changed over the years. Uh, you know, yeah. uh, it's become a huge industry, as we know. Yeah. So when you think about it, you, you know, when I say 10 percent, basically one in t- 10 jobs in the world is related to the tourism industry, actually directly related. Uh, in some countries, it's it's bigger than the rest, obviously. Uh, a destination like, say, the Bahamas, where where 75 percent, I think it's actually 85 percent of their GDP is dependent on tourism. We're somewhere around Canada. It's obviously a much uh, smaller number. But I think people are starting to realize that people have more money, hopefully, uh, but it's easier to travel. Um, you know, when you think about it over the last couple of decades, uh, flying has just become easier. It's becoming more cost efficient. Uh, there's just more option. It's, it's easier. People aren't as afraid. Uh, and sometimes it's as simple as things like there's more travel agencies. Mm. Uh, there's more destinations. So it's really becoming, the world has become a very small place. But is that a good thing or a bad thing? Because then obviously we we, we know, um, you know, climate control and things like that, global warming. Mm-hmm. It, it, there's a lot of concerns in the world. So so being travel, being able to travel more is good. But at the same time, you got to think about what's going to happen in the future. And, you know, when you talk about how our, our financial status as an economy is related to the, the health issues and, and traveling and, and travel industry, uh, I did uh, happen to go down to the, uh, to the Caribbean a few years ago. And, of course, it's mm-hmm. interesting to see how many, because when, you, you know, you mentioned the Bahamas and their GDP, but it's also interesting how many countries have uh, foreign interests in those countries. You know, like a lot of those, a lot of the uh, resorts are foreign owned, right? Yeah, because they realize it's just money to be made, right? Like, mm. you know, a lot of these resorts or these hotel properties or even a restaurant, when you think about it, they start in their home country and it just becomes global expansion. Uh, it's a smart thing to do. they got to diversify. Uh, you, you know, you got to imagine any brand that's 
exclusively based in China is probably hurting right now. Mm. Um, but whereas those international chains, you know, sometimes it, it helps to be able to have some income from, from other parts of the world. So let's let's elaborate on that a little bit, because I know uh, when I said, you know, there's foreign, foreign interests and there's foreign organizations that set up in some of these countries we go to visit. On the one hand, it's really nice because you get a sense when you get there as a traveler from, say, Canada or the United States, there's familiarity with with where you're going mm-hmm. and, and and what you're doing and that they recognize uh, you want certain things when you arrive, which is nice. Mm-hmm. What's the downside, though? We're not getting the the local uh, input, right? We're not seeing as much of that as we as we might have in the past. You know, I think it depends on how you look at it. So, I think these these uh, global resorts, global brands are important because quite often they're entering markets where uh, it may not be as developed, and then they're hiring local labor to build these places. They they have a lot of local staff, and then it actually kind of when you think about it, it builds this middle class and it gives an opportunity for people, you know. To invest. So then all of a sudden the locals are starting to think outside the box. Hey, you know, like you said, people are looking for the local experience. So a lot of countries now are, are introducing homestays. That mm-hmm. has become a big travel trend. So you can stay with the locals. You can take a cooking class with locals. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of different tour operators out there, such as G Adventures, where basically they try to basically work with all the local operators. So all the money that you're putting in is actually going right back into the local communities as much as possible. Uh, so, so to me, I, I think it's good. Uh, but at the same time, you got to realize, you, you know, if you're the type of traveler who just wants to go to a resort and sit on the beach, then uh, I, I don't think you're admitting that you, you got the local experience. You're just going for what you're going for. That's right. um, and that's not necessarily a bad thing because you are still helping the local economy. And I think that's a, a good thing in the grand scheme of things. You know, when you when you put it like that in, in terms of the local experience and that there there's more home rentals and, and you can get those experiences that getting some uh, some some, uh, uh, as I think you said, cooking experiences, those kind of things, which is wonderful. It's great. All those things are becoming available. But it, it does bring up the other side of things, I guess, where travel is changing in terms of that. We're seeing it here in, in North America as well. Airbnb is affecting uh, where people are staying and, and giving people new options. Do you see that in what you're doing? Yeah, Airbnb, the funny thing is, I remember years ago when it was first introduced, uh, I was an early adopter and people thought I was crazy. Like, are you seeing a random stranger's uh, apartment or, or whatever? Like, how is it safe? And then, you know, you could say the same thing about Ubers, right? Mm. But uh, And now it's, it's just dominating the world. I think it just gives people another option because uh, some hotels are more expensive than, say, Airbnb. So again, if it allows travelers to save money, uh, that's a good thing because it's not like travelers are just saving money. They're still going to the destination and spending. Mm-hmm. So you got to think about it that way. It gives an opportunity for tr- for people to maybe experience and spend money in a destination that they may have not been able to afford uh, before these platforms became available. Uh, but the nice thing I like about Airbnb is there's, there's competition. Mm. Uh, it makes hotels get more creative with their offerings. Uh, now you've actually seen hotels that kind of have an Airbnb style where it's just like a very no frills or sometimes they have the kitchens. Uh, but at the same time, you, you got to think about uh, does Airbnb do harm? Uh, you know, here in Toronto, you, current, you constantly hear stories about Airbnb parties, mm-hmm. uh, condos overrun by Airbnb rentals. As a result, the rental stock market uh, is not really that high. Uh, so that means higher rents because people are just trying to make money one way or another. Um, you know, for potential Airbnb owners, it's not that easy, but everyone seems like they're just trying to make money quickly. And I certainly understand why that would be appealing, but quite often people forget about all the extra costs associated with being basically a landlord. 
Well, you know, it's interesting. Uh, what I think of when you say that is it's kind of like we're in a, a transitional period because there are these things that are happening so much quicker now with the Internet and with social media uh, and, and also with our options that are available to us. So it, it's just the way th- things maybe moved slower years ago, but it's just that people are seeing these things and taking advantage of them more quickly and it affects things more quickly. Um, it, it's just capitalism, yeah. isn't it? It's just the way it works. Yeah, it's crazy when you think about it, too. When you look at these fintech companies, I think I was reading, you know, uh, Amazon owner Jeff Bezos. He's like one of the richest people in the world. Mm. But at the same time, uh, I think Amazon still isn't profitable. Uh, mm. A lot of these companies, they basically build out as quickly as possible to dominate the market. And basically, they get a monopoly. Uh, but they're still not profitable. So so quite often, I, I wonder about all these, these, you know, travel is one of them. It's not just travel, just many different financial uh, technology companies. But like, Who's going to be the last man standing, right? Mm-hmm. And in the end, does it really benefit consumers? Uh, or like you said, is it just, you know, someone's trying to like consumerism, uh, someone's going to end up with, with a, a lot of money. And then in the end, does it hurt travelers more? Mm-hmm. Or does it hurt local economies? We really don't know quite yet. Well, speaking of, of traveling and hurting traveling, uh, I'd like to let everyone know you're listening to Element FM. This is Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. My guest is Barry Choi. He is a travel expert and also a financial expert, but he's not a financial advisor. I'd like to make that clear. He does make that distinction himself. And uh, we've been talking a little bit about travel. We've been talking a little bit about uh, GDPs and, and, uh, and how, uh, how the travel industry is affected uh, by uh, things such as we are now experiencing the uh, the COVID nineteen virus that is is seems to be spreading, um, and I guess that's that's uh, Barry. I'm sure that's a question you're getting these days. Is how should people <laughs> how should people treat travel these days? I uh, you know I, I tell people it's like if you're paranoid about COVID nineteen or even previous uh, respiratory issues H one N one SARS, mm. there's nothing I say that's going to change your mind. Um, uh, I, I as a frequent traveler. I'm a little bit more to the ground, if you know what I mean. Like, I know what's going on. Mm. Uh, but the best advice I usually give people is, you know, talk to the locals of, of what's happening. Mm. So, so Italy, you know, Canada just released a pretty significant travel advisory against mm-hmm. Italy yesterday morning, advising all non-essential travel. However, if you actually really read the details, it refers to just northern Italy. Mm. Uh, very specific pockets mm. uh, where there has been reported deaths, uh, a lot of infected. But then if you look at the Italian tourism board, they say straight out that they've already quarantined that zone. So you can't get in and out of that area <laughs> anyway, right. right? So what I'm getting at is if you're going to Rome or Florence, you're probably not going to have any issues. Mm. You, you know, obviously you want to be smart about things. You may not want to shake hands. Mm. Uh, you may want to time uh, your your when you're going out, so there's not as many crowds, but I'm assuming right now there's a hardly fewer crowds as a result of this. You may want to use hand sanitizer more often. You may want to wash your hands more often. Um, so it's really about just being a smart traveler. You, you know, if you had plans to go to Wuhan, China, you, I'm pretty sure you've already canceled them. Mm. <laughs> right? Do you know what I mean? Uh, but this is nothing different from any other crisis that's, that's happened in the past. You know, hurricanes in the Caribbean. Uh, last year, the Dominican Republic had negative headlines uh, because of alleged suspicious deaths, which were proven later to be deaths by natural causes. So there's mm. always a reason for people to, quote unquote, not travel. You just got to be smart about it. And if you are going to travel, take some extra precautions, such as making sure you have travel insurance. Right. Uh, yeah, I've heard now that's another issue, isn't it? Uh, there's some stories about uh, whether whether you're gonna, your travel insurance is going to cover some things. 
Mm-hmm. So, so travel insurance hasn't really changed over the years. People are just panicking. So just because you don't want to travel somewhere because of coronavirus, that's not a legit reason to, or not a valid reason for an insurance purposes to cancel your trip and give you a full refund. People get upset about this, but this isn't, Mm-hmm. This hasn't changed in, in decades, so mm-hmm. this is nothing new. So like I was saying about that uh, travel advisor to Northern Italy, well, let's just say you were specifically going to Northern Italy and you're flying out of an airport within Northern Italy. Yeah, your travel insurance would probably cover you that, right? right? You'd be able to cancel. Or a better example is if you had a trip planned to China, Air Canada's canceled all their flights, uh, pretty much a lot of China's in a lockdown, your travel insurance would 100% apply, assuming we're talking about trip cancellation, mm. right? Um, but again, you know, let's say you've got a, a cruise ship booked and you've seen the headlines recently, you're a paranoid, you don't want to go on a cruise and you want to cancel and you're thinking your travel insurance can apply. No, it's not going to apply. Um, there are a few exceptions. The one being you can get a rider, which basically is a uh, cancel for any reason, which mm. costs you extra, right. but it also wouldn't necessarily cost your entire trip. Uh, so, so to me, this is actually a good opportunity to inform the public of how travel insurance actually works. Uh, to think that you can just cancel for any reason is absurd because when you buy travel insurance, you get a certificate that outlines everything that is covered. So you should know. Right. Now, of course, when you bring up that uh, idea of traveling, you brought up the cruise ship. Uh, and, and the other thing is you have to get there. I think uh, there's also concern for people that are thinking of they have to get on a plane. It's a confined area. A, a cruise ship is a confined area. We heard about the situation uh, that you know everyone was was held on that cruise ship, uh, a couple of them. And uh, mm-hmm. it, w- what do you say to people that have to travel or want to travel, um, but they do have to get there, and they're going to be in a confined area with people? You know, I certainly understand that that it's a concern for many people, but to me, it's it's a bit of a little bit of paranoia. You know, statistically speaking, you have a greater chance of dying whenever you drive to work or get in the car every single day, as opposed to dying in overseas terrorist attack or whatever reason, right? So, are all of a sudden people going to stop driving? No, that's not the case. Uh, another interesting stat I read, you know, back when when a uh, 9/11 happened, you know, almost 20 years ago, uh, flying went down significantly. And as a result, more people were taking road trips. But what's interesting, then all of a sudden road fatalities increased because more people were driving. So, like, you know what I mean? Like, you can't necessarily win. But more importantly, what I'm trying to get at is you can't live in fear. Uh, you know, public health officials have already said these masks don't really help, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So if you want to get on a plane, the best thing you can do, and I did this myself on a recent trip, is this, I basically wiped down the entire seat, you know, the screen, right. the remote, the, the food tray right. with a uh, disinfection wipe. Right. And to me, I was like, this is really the best I can do unless I'm going to cancel my trip. And even if I cancel my trip, what am I going to do? Stay at home and live in a bubble? Mm. Right? It makes no sense. Mm. Yeah, I hear you. And, and it seems that there is that going on. The other thing that brings up for me is is how media plays this as well. You know, uh, media has mm-hmm. a role to play and they always go for stuff that's going to capture people's attention. And that's not necessarily <laughs> always the best thing. For instance, I like what you just said about uh, Italy. You said, you know, you went deeper, you looked into the story further, which you then found, oh, it's only pertaining to the northern part of Italy. So mm-hmm. that might be another piece of advice for people to to not just listen to the headline. Don't just don't just take it as as uh, as you see it or hear it. Uh, look into mm-hmm. it further. Do your own education. Do your own uh, your own uh, um, uh, looking into these issues to find out more before you just write everything off and and think that oh it's a done deal. Uh, you need to find out the the specifics on on these things. 
Yeah, exactly. You know, I used to work in the media, so I certainly understand how a news cycle works. But it was interesting because yesterday I was talking to one of the uh, deputy ministers of tourism at the Bahamas uh, working on this story. And he was telling me last year when Hurricane Dorian hit, uh, it affected the Bahamas, but, but it only affected two islands. For people who aren't familiar, mm. the Bahamas is an island region of 700 islands. So the media is showing all these images of destruction, and people at home are thinking, oh my goodness, the Bahamas have been wiped off the planet Earth. Mm-hmm. They don't exist anymore. But again, it was just these two islands, uh, the major islands of Nassau and Paradise Island, which makes up 75% of travelers to all of the Bahamas. There was no, nothing happened. Mm. Everything was open as business. Right. So the Minister of Tourism told me straight out, they basically had to give the media, the consumers, uh, their trade partners, a geography lesson. They sure. literally printed out maps that this is the islands that are closed and these are the islands that are open. But you bring up a very good point about media. And this is something that I understand how works the media, but it doesn't necessarily portray the right image. So media was reporting live from Nassau, again, where it was perfectly fine and immediately showing clips and video of the destruction. Mm. So to someone who may not be familiar with the process, they're thinking that this is happening, you know, 10 feet away from them, but in reality, it's 180 miles away. So, so it's that perception, or, and this is exactly what things, you really got to do a little bit of a additional research to find out, is the area you're going to affect affected. Uh, if not, you're probably fine. Or, or what other steps you need to take to protect yourself? Sounds good. Research, research, everybody. Uh, do your research before you just uh, panic or, or think that uh, it, it's all uh, doom and gloom. Um, uh, thank you for that, uh, Barry. And Barry, uh, you mentioned the Bahamas a couple of times. We have to wrap up our conversation, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. I'm just wondering, we don't hear much about the, the, uh, the Caribbean or you know the, the travel areas to warmer temperatures right now with the COVID-19. Do you know anything about what's happening that way? Is it How's it looking down there in terms of travel? The Caribbean's looking pr- pretty good right now. I don't think there's been any reported cases mm-hmm. uh, in the Caribbean, so it's just really fine. Like, you know, most people who think about the Caribbean, they're more worried about potentially Zika. Uh, I think it may exist in some areas. Mm-hmm. And obviously with the upcoming hurricane season, which is happening later in the year. Barry, it's been a pleasure speaking with you. We really appreciate you taking the time to come on the show and, and talk to us about this and, and share your thoughts and ideas and, and, and help to alleviate some of the concern that's out there. Yeah, no problem. Anytime. Our pleasure. That is Barry Choi. He is a travel expert and financial expert, and uh, he was online uh, to us uh, from Toronto. Barry Choi, B-A-R-R-Y-C-H-O-I. Don't go away. We'll be right back on Element FM and Moment of Truth. Welcome back to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses, and you're listening to Element FM in Ottawa and Toronto, and that is 95.7 in Ottawa, 106.5 in Toronto, I'd like to welcome my next guest to the show. They are in the studio with me. It is Max Scudra and Samantha Morton. Max is the uh, the director of research at the Canadian Council for Aboriginal Business, and Samantha Morton is has a Bachelor of Arts and a degree in Global Development Studies from Queen's University. Now, Samantha, I are you uh, are you related somehow to the Canada Council or just work with the Canada Council? Yes, so actually I'm on uh, the research team as well. I'm project manager for the research department at CCAB. Okay, great. So, so CCAB being the Canada Council for Aboriginal Business. So why are they here, you might ask? Well, they're here because we're going to talk about some research findings uh, that have been done and a report for uh, Aboriginal Economic Development Corporation capacity and... Uh, and how it is a driving force in Indigenous economy and overall in the market in Canada. So, um, welcome to the show, first of all, both of you. 
Thank you. Thanks for having us here. Yeah, excited to be here. So, you know, uh, I have to admit, I, uh, I, I tried to, to look through this 40-page <laughs> <laughs> document. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, you know, my eyes glossed over a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, Max, if you don't mind, maybe you could introduce us and our listeners to a little bit about this. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I, um, um, I think the thing is that it's, it's, a, it's content that is really interesting. It's really important for Canada, quite frankly. Mm-hmm. And, and, but it's, it's technical stuff, so it's hard to get. As a researcher, <laughs> it's hard to get people to read our stuff. Um, uh, you know, so the report is, is, is based on work that Sam and I, as well as, as uh, uh, Brittany Salt and Katrina Savick and, and Andy, uh, did on our team going to over a hundred indigenous communities over the summer uh, of 2018. And we, we wanted to make sure we could get sort of the work is national perspectives on indigenous prosperity. We want to see really what is happening in communities, what kind of businesses are company or communities pulling together. Dev Corps, Act Dev Corps, Aboriginal Economic Development Corporations mm-hmm. are, are corporations created by their communities mm-hmm. to represent the community's business interests in the market. So sure. they're given direction and, yep. and, you know, and some of these are huge, Huge firms, and right. hundred on average, hundreds of uh, employees, most indigenous, most of them indigenous, um, and these organizations are really driving indigenous prosperity. And we wanted to understand, you know, a few things. First, sort of what the capacity is, and we had amazing findings in that area. Uh, who they're doing business is, and really why? Well, what, what's their perspective? What's what's their goal? What's yeah? How do they work with their communities? And and you assume that they're not in business for the same reason a Bay Street banker is or 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 a corporate lawyer is. So why? Why are they? And mm-hmm. and I think that that was some of the really interesting conversations we were able to have. Well, then what did you find? Because that's an interesting question. Why are they doing this? What is their reasoning? Right. So the the big vision, I think, was really around uh, how do you create prosperity in communities? How mm. do you create independence? I think a, a big th- theme of our conversations was wanting to not be dependent on yep. on, on right. anyone except right. their own community and their own community, and then create uh, jobs and opportunities for the youth. Sure. And uh, create enough wealth to sort of make sure that elders or, or the sick need, have are taken care of on on with independently at the discretion of the community itself so the community gets to make those choices thank you for mentioning that because it goes back to what you're saying is is why are they doing this and how are they doing it differently mm-hmm. and you just pointed out one example right there about the elders taking care mm-hmm. of the elders and that perspective of 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 that approach to business mm-hmm. it goes right down to the to i guess the setting up of the business mm-hmm. right and so my question is there's there's partners partnerships mm-hmm. that are established with non-indigenous companies and those mm-hmm. kind of things. How do you see that developing, especially with this this new approach that I'm sure non-indigenous businesses are being exposed to in mm-hmm. terms of, we hadn't thought of that, we hadn't really taken that into consideration, because indigenous uh, businesses, uh, I'm sure some of them, maybe mm-hmm. not, not all, but wanting prosperity like anyone else, wanting to take care of their community like Absolutely. anyone else, mm-hmm. but they do have this, they do have more of a relationship to the land. Absolutely. They do have more of a relationship to Mother Earth mm-hmm. and sustainability and all of those things. So what have you? What did you find out from this, from doing your, your research? Well, you know, we, what we found was there were partnerships across the country. And, and a lot, often those partnerships will start because there's a duty to consult or they'll, there's a legal obligation. Okay, we have to have a conversation. But what we were finding is there's a move away from that as, as, there's, as those relationships uh, build as um, a common understanding from the indigenous side and the corporate side of what goals and where you can give a little, where you can get a little, you mm. know, as one, as, as they mm. get to know each other, mm. they're really moving towards more uh, shared values and really, and, and target setting mutually. Mm. And I think that that's sort of, it, it's, it goes, 
kind of like you start the relationship because there's an obligation, you know, or, the, or there's a corporate social responsibility we right. want to. Sure. And then it goes to sort of this business case where, oh, actually, this makes a lot of sense. And we can make, you know, like we can we can prosper mm. together. Mm. And then it just becomes ingrained in the fabric of the organ of the company right. Um, right. To, to make these uh, relationships. And it's not even something people think about. So if I could just jump in there as well, I think one significant aspect of the findings is during these conversations uh, with development corporations, we were finding and when we're asking about partnerships, um, they were telling us that the relationships were usually held between their CEO and the CEO of the, the corporation that they were partnered with. So we're seeing a change from uh, a kind of away from the indigenous relations advisor or more middle management relationships and really finding true value in the partnerships and seeing that through senior leadership connections. CEO to CEO, which is mm. a very, very cool thing. Which makes sense. I mean, I would hope that that is where the, the relationship should start mm. of course. And, and be established. So the other thing that comes to mind for me is also, as I'm wondering, are we, are we seeing at this point a, a learning curve from from both sides, I guess. Mm -hmm. Now, there's, there's a couple of things that are running through my mind here as we're talking. So one is, are non-Indigenous firms seeing something they hadn't thought about, as I mentioned earlier, and going, wow, this is a really interesting approach. Uh, can, we in, can we start to move some of that into what we're doing as a corporation? Mm -hmm. I absolutely think that there's there's... I don't want to paint too broad a brush here. Yep. You know, mm -hmm. the, you, what you're seeing is some amazing companies that are doing some really, really great work. You mm -hmm. see a lot of other companies that are that are getting there, mm -hmm. but I wouldn't say they're there. Right. Um, and to be frank, there's some companies that aren't there at all. Sure. You know, um, sure. but it's a process. And I think you're seeing one of the things that I think is very cool is you're starting to see some of the indigenous businesses get to such a, a lot of the time you'll have smaller startup indigenous companies partner with a more established non-indigenous right. business as a sort of vehicle to grow. Yes. What you're now starting to see is more of those indigenous businesses hitting a, a level that the, they can now be that partner. So there's a sophisticated indigenous company that's partnering with a startup, more, more startup or early stage indigenous mm -hmm. business. And I think that that's a, a real sign of, of a growing ability and growing capacity in the indigenous economy. I'll throw this out to, to both of you. Uh, I'm just wondering if you saw any of this or, or recognized this. It's something that I think of a, a documentary I saw on Netflix, and it had to do with United States. Mm -hmm. and, it, and it went back to the early 1900s, and it had to do with, well, actually, it went way back to slavery mm -hmm. in the United States, and it talked about how big of a business mm -hmm. industry slavery was. And then how that evolved, and of course, and slavery was was abolished, and and but now you had this black uh, this black uh, uh, population mm -hmm. that was trying to get into you know the the everyday life of, mm -hmm. of being in America, mm -hmm. and but how they described it was look at it this way. It's a there's a race that started <clears throat> 60 years ago, okay, and. All the all the the white Americans and middle class and and, and you know the kids mm -hmm. went to school. They started to make money. They started to put money away. They had all that. They started to do that. Well, now fifty years later, they're middle class. They've got you know they've got homes. They've ha established some money. They've got some money put mm -hmm. away. Now you've got this black population that has been put into the race, but they're fifty years behind the mark At and least. trying to catch up. Right? Yes, exactly. Is is an example? Yeah, it's yeah, an yeah. example, Right? Now. Uh, why I'm saying that is we know that there was inequality in Canada with indigenous people. We all know about that. So 
there's inequality on many levels. One of them is that uh, many indigenous people were, were were not allowed lawyers. They weren't allowed to leave the reserve. There's a there was a disadvantage system set up, and I don't believe we're through that yet. I'm not trying to speak for everyone, but I believe that that we're probably feeling still the effects of all that residential school, et cetera, et cetera. So, what do you guys or have you seen in in what you're doing that might reflect that? Mm-hmm. So, I think that there's. It, I, I agree a hundred percent with the point you just made. I think that there's historically in living memory, right? And I, I mm. we try to be careful when we talk about historic. Sure. It's not three hundred years ago, right? Yep. It's it's mm-hmm. it's the eighties, mm-hmm. it's the seventies, it's mm-hmm. it's the residential schools in the nineties, yep. right? So yep. so that's an important thing. I think that the. the it's much less overt. You know, it used to be you'd have to give up your status and your identity if you wanted to go off reserve and start a business or to mm-hmm. do business in certain uh, provinces with with uh, compete with non-indigenous businesses. You you had to you weren't allowed. So now that's changed. I still think that there are more. It's more of a hangover of of mm-hmm. that. So, for example, Sam and I were in a community in BC and and land development. They have mm-hmm. you know a, a certain amount. I think a few hundred acres. Which you know, if we're being honest, in 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 parts of rural Canada is not necessarily immediately valuable. Whereas in southern BC in the Okanagan Valley, that is that is you know billions with a B kind of money, uh, land value. So they're now developing it. Well, the problem is because it's federal jurisdiction, they're held to a federal standard. So they're having to bring in people from Ottawa to to get their approvals done because of a beetle that is in, you know, the Maritimes Mm. and their competitor across the street is sitting here on BC regulatory, which is relevant to that province. So um, that's one thing. And I think I really liked your point about sort of um, being held back because one of our big pushes, one of the big findings from this report is, is around procurements and supply chains Mm -hmm. and, and it's, and it's, 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 I gloss over stuff, you know, it's not, it's not, it's not exciting and it's, it's tough to thump the tables on, Mm. but the federal government spends roughly $20 million, 20, yeah, 20 million a year, Mm. 20 billion, 20 billion a year. Thank you. That's why Sam is the the brains (laughs) of the operation, 20 billion a year. Um, and less than one percent of that is spent on indigenous companies, and mm. our sh- work shows that, in mm. fact, indigenous businesses could could do twenty four percent of the business that the federal right. government contracts a year yep. in almost every subsector of of NAICS classifications. And again, I can get really technical about it, but but basically, there's no lack of capacity in almost every field, mm. and not industry. I mean, like aerospace part widgets for the aerospace sector, mm. like quite specific. Um, and I think that that traditional uh, disenfranchisement, that traditional uh, uh, lack of uh, access has created a system where you have, tradi- um, you know, more established firms in the government system. Uh, CCAB is really pushing hard and to their credit, the liberals have, have, have committed to a goal of 5% spend roughly the population on indigenous uh, uh, businesses. And that would add a billion dollars a year to the indigenous economy. Mm. And, and there is, n- it should be a floor, not a ceiling. It shouldn't be an aspiration. Right. It should be the baseline, <laughs> sure, sure. but you are where you are and we're working towards that. And I think that that would be a, a very specific and targeted way to improve day-to-day opportunities. Mm-hmm. And I know Sam has actual details on that. Uh, Sam, just before you go, if sure. you don't mind, I'm just going to jump in and let everyone know you're listening to Element FM. This is a moment of truth. I'm your host, David Moses. My guests in the studio with me are Max Scudra, and he is the Director of Research at the Canadian Council for Aboriginal Business, and Samantha Morton, and she is the Project Manager. Thank you. <laughs> And it's a pleasure to have them both. We're talking about uh, uh, some, some, uh, some, some research that was done uh, with the Aboriginal Economic Development Corporation uh, and, and the capacity of what that can bring to the Canadian economy. 
And it's a pleasure to have them both here to actually uh, take some of the gloss off of my eyes uh, <laughs> with this report. And so it's a pleasure to have them both here. Uh, Samantha, you were just about to say. Yeah. So, David, I think just building off of that point at, you know, Indigenous peoples in Canada starting at a place behind hmm. uh, the Canadian population. Mm-hmm. Um And it really speaks to, I think, some of the common misconceptions around the capacity, the size, the sophistication, and really the impact that Indigenous businesses are having on the Canadian economy and what they're contributing year over year. Uh, And that's a really important aspect of some of the research that we did actually last year. It's our industry and inclusion report where Max mentioned we looked at uh, federal procurement demands uh, and compared that to Indigenous business capacity in Canada. And what we found actually was that Indigenous businesses were able to supply just around a quarter of all federal government spend in a given year, so 24.2%. And that led us to really be pushing this 5% procurement target. And we're not seeing through the research that, you know, Indigenous businesses can do maybe 6 or 7%. They can do a quarter of federal spend and 5% is uh, what we think is a really achievable and realistic target. So then how do, we, how do we move forward from this research that you've done? What, do you, what, what are some of the thoughts you guys came away with in terms of moving forward? Absolutely. Well, I think a lot of it is follow-up in Ottawa, making sure that it's, it's the priority that it ought to be, mm-hmm. I think is, is, is a really key piece of work for us. We have a program at CCAB, a supply change program, and, and we're doing a huge amount of work internally, both through our PAR program for corporate and, and our supply change and, and uh, procurement uh, initiatives to make sure that there's a facility for that. You know, mm-hmm. you need to make it easy for folks so that they can actually achieve these targets. Mm-hmm. Um, nobody likes a target that they can't meet, Sure, you know, and that's fair. But so our, our whole purpose at CCAB is to bring bring indigenous businesses and non-indigenous businesses together, get those opportunities on the government tables and get those deals done, you know, and that's, I think, something sure. we're really working towards. So I have a question in regard to that and, and talking about uh, about the the um, sort of disadvantage that was that, that indigenous businesses may find. Um, you know, what, the reason I say that is because... Big business mm-hmm. uh, and and corporate business, they they're demanding. They want to get things done, and so uh, you know, coming up against uh, an indigenous uh, either community or or organization that has unfortunately not had that same experience and mm-hmm. has come from a different experience, uh, could create issues of just saying, well, what, what's going on here? You know, mm-hmm. like we don't have time for this. So. Is maybe CCAB doing something to help indigenous businesses educate themselves, get mm-hmm. on the get on the you know get on top of things, so they know how to talk, mm-hmm. they know what to look for, they know right. uh, how to approach. Right. So I think we're doing a few things. We have a tools and financing for Aboriginal business program where folks can sort of come to learn some of the mm-hmm. finer points of, of how mm-hmm. to how, uh, achieve that business success. I think what we're seeing, what I've personally seen quite a bit of, and this isn't really necessarily a finding, it's it's that indigenous businesses are hungry for growth and they're hungry for success and. And, and when you set up the right governance structures, if, mm-hmm. and a big part of a, a DevCorp's community-owned development corporations is that it's a good structure for success because it right. really unleashes sure. that business sort of spirit. There is, they are absolutely as uh, uh, driven and able to hit timelines and able to hit deadlines once they have the opportunity. You know, and I think that uh, you know we talk about Suncor quite a bit, and Suncor spends seven hundred million dollars a year on indigenous companies. Um, that's 7% of their spend. Again, the federal government mm. can't hit 1%. Mm. Um, 
And when you listen to their CEO talk, he said, you know, Suncor is not a rainbows and unicorns kind of company. It's an energy company. They won't compromise on cost. They won't compromise on time and they won't compromise on safety. Mm. And yet indigenous businesses are doing like a really a material, mm. you know, that's real business. Mm-hmm. That's not mm-hmm. a CSR play and that, it would, nothing wrong with that, by the way. But that's not a, a sort of um, a gimme. Those numbers, right. sure, you know, and that yeah, yeah. and that's Suncor. You're seeing Bruce Power do a huge amount, right? Yeah, you're seeing, you know, OPG with equity positions. You're seeing a number of organizations throughout the country really, um, once they've made a commitment to figuring it out. No one's saying it's not tricky to figure out in the early days, but the success that you get and and the local supply chains and the you know it's 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 real pays dividends in the long term. Mm-hmm. I, I just want to uh, mention that in in bringing up what I was bringing up. It was in no way meant to be a, a, as oh. a disadvantage. And I, no, I'm saying this from my perspective in case someone was thinking, why is he saying this? I'm saying it because it, it's, it's a reality and I know it from my own experience. I, I've seen it uh, from my, in my own community and, and, I, and, I, and I've seen it from a, a non-Indigenous perspective in terms of businesses that I've uh, seen you know, work with other people mm-hmm. and, and there's some confusion. So I just want to make sure that people have that awareness mm-hmm. that there is still that going on and that it's, it's something that needs to be, be looked at and, and, and dealt with so that there is a, an equal playing field. That's all. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, any final comments, guys? Uh, we, you know, we have to wrap this up, unfortunately. But Samantha, uh, just one comment. So this is uh, the National Perspectives on Indigenous Prosperity. Mm-hmm. Uh, this AEDC capacity report is yes. the first of a series. Okay. So we will be launching uh, two reports following this report uh, in the next coming months. And to speak to the research, so the AEDC report that we're talking about today really. Uh, looked at capacity and business capacity. Uh, The following two reports uh, were based on interviews with political and community leadership uh, on economic development vision and goals for the community. Uh, And then we looked, of course, at the impact of economic development and business development on the social prosperity of communities. So stay tuned for that research that we'll be launching in a few months. Great. And uh, for people that want to see the report that, that, that uh, is out now, where can they find that? You can look at our website at ccab.com. We, uh, we have it in our research section. Okay. Or you and can bother us and we will send it to you because uh, <laughs> it's, it's my mission in life to get people to read these reports. So, uh, Well, and, and it's good information to have, of course, a, as we move forward and to build a strong economy for Indigenous uh, businesses and people and communities right across the country and internationally. Let's not leave that out. It's been a pleasure to have Mark uh, Scudra, the uh, director of... Re- what did I say? Scudra, Mark. Mark, sorry, It's actually Mark, a running joke in the office. I get it all the time. Mark is like... Uh, Max Scudra. I'm sorry. I said it right the first time. You did. You did. Max absolutely. Max Scudra. <laughs> He's the director of research at the Canadian Council for Aboriginal Business. And Samantha Morton, she is the research manager. Correct. And, <laughs> and it's been a pleasure to have them both here in the studio. And we look forward to having you back again. So that, uh, you know, I can, I can also look at the next report and have my eyes closed. Over. <laughs> it's, thanks for coming in, guys. Thank you for having us. All right. Cheers. Don't go away. We'll be right back on Moment of Truth. Welcome back to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. That is 106.5 in Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa. I'd like to welcome my next guest to the show. She's on the line and she is Professor Heather Lotherington. She's a professor at York University and uh, in the Department of Multilingual Education and the Associate Dean of Research, and it's a pleasure to have her join us today. Welcome to the show, Hi. Heather. <laughs> Thank you. It's really nice to be here. 
it's an interesting conversation I think we're going to have, considering this is radio. We we can't see any of the emojis that we might be talking about in the conversation. No, it's true. <laughs> but that is indeed why we're uh, we're going to be talking. We're going to be talking about language and specifically how you ha- you would like to have, I guess, language taught a different way now because of the way social media is is affecting the way we both talk and text to each other. Uh, and making us think differently, I guess. Well, I think we need to pay attention to the times. We do commerce differently. Uh, We do everyday everything differently, Mm. and we communicate differently. And at this point, how we communicate in our day-to-day lives does not show up very well in language teaching courses. And the big difference is that a lot of the work that's been done on describing how language works was done at a time when language worked on paper and in speech and in different kinds of recorded speech or televised, stuff like that. But this is 30 years after that point, or 40, I guess now, it our lives very differently. And so we have to attend to the fact that that changes how we communicate in language. And that really hasn't been taken account of very well in language courses. Uh, well, I hear what you're saying. You know, as, as you're talking there, I can't help but think, in fact, of how my the conversations I have with my 15-year-old daughter have changed. Um, oh yes, <laughs> I'm a parent too. <laughs> you know, and, and so I, I hear you. I mean, in in, in ten fifteen years, uh, what they will be doing as adults and how they will be communicating is definitely going to incorporate a lot of this stuff that they're they're doing now. So, yeah, I think you're 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 probably onto something there about staying on top of the times and how things are are presented and and worked in. Give you another example that would ring home to those of us who were educated in an earlier era, and it's this. We had to study Shakespeare. Mm. Now, I loved Shakespeare because I like language and languages and literature and stuff like that, but not everybody does. And one of the problems with studying Shakespeare was this, that you pick it up and it would be full of these funny words. People just didn't talk normally there. was wrong with those old guys? Why did they have to use this weird language? And of course, if you weren't a really kind of linguistically inclined person, you read Romeo and Juliet and you missed, you know, all of the, the, the sex and violence and suicide and all kinds of stuff that's going on for, you know, for Seuss my lord, you know, mm. kind of things. And so it's basically that brought up another 400 years is is essentially what we're looking at. Language continually changes, but we've had a period of incredibly radical change. And yes, I I, <laughs> I have a family too, <laughs> and you just got to try to keep up. That's all you can do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Uh, and, and of course, it, and it is changing much more rapidly these days because of social media and because of uh, the way we have our 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 new appendage, our phones that uh, that are with us all the time and do so much for us now. Yes, that's true. I mean, language changes naturally over space and time. In the days of Jane Austen, that would be a letter sent by some sort of Pony Express or something mm. that would take months to come back. 
And so the speed of possibility of language change was was pretty slow. Now we have communications going out all over the world in a nanosecond. And, you know, you, you get all kinds of places where language can be innovative and where language is just sort of used in a funny way and it, 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 it catches on and so on and so forth. And so it's just the speed of language change is, is lightning now. And so you were saying, or you're, you're sort of presenting the idea that we should be incorporating, as you say, uh, staying on top of the times by incorporating emojis and, and hashtags and, and these kind of things, uh, because, as you point out, they can abbreviate how we, how we speak and the communication we're trying to, to get across. Yeah, this is the point at which I expect parents to start lobbing tomatoes at me, but... <laughs> You know, in truth, what happens is in language courses, we teach kind of fairly formal language. I mean, people want to sound good when they speak, and that's, that's, that's understandable. And in fact, emojis are not something that are spoken, they're only written. But, but what you have to be able to do is to use the right kind of language for the right kind of time. And if the the thing that got me started on this was investigating language apps in mobile language learning, and they tended to use this 1950s kind of grammatical patterning. And wait a minute, we are using as the means of of dissemination the most kind of modern technology we have in our hands, and what we're learning on this is something that my my parents and and even their parents were using this is just crazy so what you have to learn is the kind of language that makes sense for the medium you're using if you're writing a business letter but who writes business letters then you need to write all that old stuff the comma goes here you know and mm. so on and so forth but if what you're doing is communicating on a social basis. And a lot of language learning at least starts out there, or some of our interests, you know, going to Mexico, I like to learn a little Spanish, you know, mm. is really on that level. Then, you know, the business letter stuff's not going to work for you. You've got to be communicating in a way that makes sense. And that's the moment where this stuff comes in. Right. You know, as you as you were talking about that, and as I'm, I'm looking at... Uh, uh, you know some emojis as we as we we speak, and I was just thinking uh, that emojis are, are much similar to an extension of what we have seen uh, out on our streets when we travel. We get down the road, we go to the airport, we go to the bus terminal, wherever it might be that we're going, and 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 they're turning more to a, a visual message than a written uh, statement uh, for trying to communicate where we should be going. Uh, and that's to make them more international, so they're they're more recognizable by everyone, regardless of language. Yeah, that kind of iconic stuff. You're you're absolutely right. Those signs, uh, you know, uh, construction, uh, uh, road closed, you know, mm. this kind of stuff. Those are basically the same kind of critters as emoji mm-hmm. they're uh, they're pictograms mm-hmm. they give you a message in in a picture and you're right they're they're universal to a degree and that's been one of the interesting things we've been chasing down with our research team is finding out just how universal uh, some of these things like emoji uh, the use of a hashtag looks like it's it's got good universal potential mm-hmm. the at sign has got you know, potential for that's just a kind of universal thing now, too. Mm. Um, 
So we've been chasing it down, but there are some subtle differences, as there will be, because language is cultural. Sure. And so the way we use, you know, whatever the particular smiley will be slightly different from the way they do it in Albania, or it'll be considered impolite, or, or I don't know, you know, there'll be a difference, yeah. yeah Languages get... grow cultural populations, as well as, you know, fake languages... Um, uh, you know, there are artificial Esperanto, artificial languages like that, mm. um, and they grow dialects because people say, well, I'm going to have this neutral language and we're going to use it, and no language is neutral, and we'll use it over here, and we'll use it over here, and we'll use it over here, and after you get going for a while, the people who are using it in the, the, the eastern country have got their own eastern way of sort of saying things and doing things, and that's a little different from the southern lot, and that's a little different from the western lot, and so forth. Yeah, I, I, exactly. Uh, just to, before we go any further, I want to let everyone know that you're listening to Element FM, and this is Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. My guest is Professor Heather Lotherington. She is a professor at my old alma mater, York University. Uh, she's a multilingual education and associate dean and uh, research, and she, we're talking about uh, about language and how it's changing, and uh, she 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 wants to bring it more into the times and about how it's taught and and how it is is utilized in terms of I guess sharing those those uh, those thoughts and ideas of how we communicate uh, because it is changing more rapidly. Social media is having a huge impact. Emojis are used uh, all over. Hashtag uh, those kind of things. So, um, but I notice also you you talk about um, language. And as as, uh, as this is your your focus, study in language structures and how meanings and and how languages differ. Um, you you specifically mm-hmm. point to, for instance, in indigenous languages, which I have a little bit of understanding about from from my own experience, but uh, I don't know uh, the languages. Uh, as much as I should, uh, but it's really interesting to speak with Indigenous people about how language uh, works with Indigenous people. Yes, actually, there's the thing that really fascinated me in this particular case was that a, a kind of, I would call it a rare grammatical uh, kind of principle but it's it's certainly not seen as often as some other forms of sort of grammatical patterning um, is called agglutination and a number of aboriginal languages in uh, North America follow agglutinative polysynthetic language patterns now this is I don't want to sound like I'm just lobbing a bunch of big words around <laughs> So what these English, for instance, let me let me do it this way. Let me just show an example. English is a very analytic language. Mm. You don't stick much information on words in English. We do a little bit. I look. I looked. You know, she looks. She or uh, she she looks. Uh, I look. This kind of thing, like a tiny little wee bits and pieces on the end of words, but not very much. Uh, I'm sure most of your listeners learn French in school. French does a whole lot more. It's like, oh, I remember all these endings, and why do you have to put this extra E on the end of it, and so on and so forth. And that's because it's a little more synthetic. It requires that information for the language to make sense. With, for example, the Ojibwe language, you have polysynthetic language where you stick lots of words together and it makes what looks like one sort of giant word, and you need a whole sentence in English to do that. 
But that's the way the grammar works. So the languages have a different structural kind of set of principles by which they work. And that's true of all languages. All languages have their own structural principles, but those principles fall along a kind of spectrum from those languages like Chinese is the best example of an analytic language. You just got, you don't add anything onto a character. You don't, can you imagine having a character and then putting apostrophe S? No, that doesn't, you know, it's just a character, another character, another character. And then on the other side of this, you have languages such as Anishinaabe Moen, our Ojibwe language, which has got everything kind of stuck together to make like one ginormous word. Um, and it's the same thing with um, languages, for instance, that are spoken by the Inuit further up north. And I... I would bring the, the kind of classic example that people think of. Oh, my goodness, there's so many different ways to say snow mm. if you live way up north. Well, actually, uh, not really. It's just that those words are, are that word, those words are formed differently. So we look out and say, well, it's a heavy, wet snow. That's a dry, powdery snow. You need three words up there. What would happen is you would stick those words together because that's the way the language works. And so what's interesting is that's how hashtags work. You stick all these bits together. And so there's no spaces in between. Sometimes there are caps, but there's no spaces. And so that's an agglutinative um, kind of grammatical uh, form. And that's not normally how, that's not how English works. It doesn't work like that. Mm. So you have something like, we've just had the Oscars, Oscars so white. Mm -hmm. And that's all stuck together as one word. Um, and me too, the me too, I mean, boy, there's a successful hashtag, you know, that's all stuck together. That has to be two separate words if you use it in print, but after a hashtag, it takes this different, this agglutinative form. And it's just really interesting to me that the, the grammatical format that's used is, you know, is a real format, a real grammatical format, but it's actually quite rare in the world's languages. Um, or shall we say less common than the a, long, a little further along the spectrum towards the the analytic languages, and it's just really a, a curiosity that we borrowed this 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 other kind of form to make a hashtag. Yeah, that is interesting. When when did you first sort of become aware of that? When did it start to capture your attention? Recently, actually, now I, I really have to say that I am not a syntactician. So I'm a linguist, yes, mm. but syntax, the, you know, the grammatical forms of language, is not my specialty. My specialty is in language learning and in multilingualism and mm. in societies in which a number of languages are are, are used. So I, I don't present myself as an expert in this area, but of course I have a fairly good grounding. But I also have a wonderful colleague. Um, who uh, is Anishinaabe, and he uh, has helped me a great deal with, you know, we, we do talk about linguistic stuff sometimes. And so um, I've quoted him in the example that I gave in, in the uh, the conversation article, for instance. Al Alan Corbier? Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. No, Alan, he, yeah. yeah. I just saw him a couple yeah, of weeks ago. He's yeah, yeah. Uh, been around for a long time. He's very informed, very informed. Yes, yeah, and so we, we've had some conversations about uh, games and language learning 
digital games animal and language learning and so we had some conversations about that and um you know i realized that he was doing he's done a game actually which is really very interesting and so he was showing me and i was trying it out not doing particularly well i must admit (laughs) (laughs) but then it you know i was i was just thinking about it i was thinking right 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 and then looking at hashtags which we were looking at we were looking in terms of what are the changes to english like what has happened and i was just looking at english um in terms of digital mediation and then forms that have become common in different sort of digital platforms and then how they've institutionalized themselves as part of normal language and just what, well, that's just how you do it, which is, of course, what you teach when you teach a language. Well, why does it do this? Well, I don't know, but it's just how the language works. Mm. And it, uh, so it's fairly recently and I've been thinking about it. Well, we appreciate you uh, you sharing that with us. You know, the other thing that comes to mind when you think of uh, not so much in terms of hashtags, but the emojis is uh, hieroglyphics, and you know, uh, sort of coming full circle in that regard. Uh, but unfortunately, we're going to have to leave our conversation there, Heather. It's been a pleasure speaking with you. We we thank you for taking the time to c- come on the show. Oh, it's my pleasure. That's Professor Heather Lotherington, and she is a York University professor, uh, multilingual education, and associate dean at York University, my old school. It's been a pleasure having you on the show, and it's been a pleasure to have you listening to us here on Element FM and Moment of Truth. That's the show for today. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. I also want to say nyawa miigwech wanishi and thank you to everyone who helps put Moment of Truth together. They include in Ottawa, Jill Kennedy and Caroline O'Neill. In Toronto, Andrew Johnson, Luca Capone, Kathy Zabokin, Andrew St. Germain. Nyawa miigwech and thanks for listening.